Morena, and welcome to the Dawn Chorus. I'm Bernard Hickey. This is my daily podcast that goes out every weekday morning with my daily email newsletter via Substack. Today I wanted to talk about helicopter money and whether or not our government, A, has looked at it, and B, whether it could do it. And then I come up with an idea on how we could do it if we wanted to. Now, you might have heard of this phrase, helicopter money. It comes from, actually, 50 or 60 years ago, when the renowned monetarist, Milton Friedman, started thinking about how a central bank or a government could stimulate an economy that was in a severe depression with falling prices, or deflation. Now, one of the problems with deflation is that once prices start falling, people are very reluctant to spend. And if, for example, you had some major shock where a lot of people were unemployed and not being paid money, then your economy would grind to a complete halt, would be catastrophic. And the most obvious example of that was in the early 1930s in the United States and to an extent the rest of the world, when the US banking system effectively collapsed in 1930 after the 1929 share market crash and that led to mass unemployment more than 30 percent and a lot of people had no money and the economy really went into a downward spiral. It eventually only came out of it when then President Roosevelt in some of his first actions as the new president effectively shut down the banking system for a couple of weeks and reconstituted it, recapitalized some banks, and did a whole bunch of things, interestingly, with the gold price and the relationship between the US dollar and the gold price, which effectively meant that he devalued the US dollar and restarted the economy by getting the banking system going again. But one of the problems was that when the Depression happened, the US government and it was the same for everyone, had no easy way, either politically or technically, to actually just give people freshly printed money to get the economy going again. So Milton Friedman came up with this phrase, helicopter money, in the 1960s, in which he imagined a government would put a whole bunch of freshly printed US dollars on into a helicopter, fly over... A, a part of a city that was quite poor and tip the money out the door and it would all flutter down onto the streets. People would then, who were poor, would pick up the cash and then go into the shops and spend the money and get the economy going again. Now he was just thinking aloud really and no one really suggests anyone would go out there with a helicopter and uh, flutter money down onto people's heads. But it got people thinking about what would happen if there was some sort of shock like that, and how you deal with it to get the economy going again. Now, it was never needed, uh, although, interestingly, once Japan found itself in a long-term period of deflation, it had to look at how to deal with this. And so the Bank of Japan became one of the first to start printing money. At that point, central banks and governments preferred to do their money printing effectively in-house, and to do it in a clouded way. So it wasn't obvious 
that the government was printing money. And the way that central banks do this is that they invent their own money out of nothing and they buy government bonds, often on financial markets from banks and fund managers. Now, these bonds will have been uh, debt issued by the government to the private market, to banks and fund managers, to pay for things that the government's doing. It might be benefits, it might be infrastructure spending, it might be health spending, whatever it is. And during the COVID crisis, in fact, immediately after the global financial crisis, we saw many central banks do this to effectively pump money into the economy through the government, money that they'd created to buy government bonds. Now, it had the uh, primary effect, according to the central banks, of lowering long-term interest rates, which helped stimulate the private parts of the economy. But also, it did help fund governments when they most needed it at pretty cheap interest rates. Now, we're facing an inflation blowout, and a whole bunch of um, people, uh, particularly around the crypto markets and elsewhere, have been saying that all this printed money over the last 20 years or so has finally caught fire in an inflationary storm. Uh, that's debatable. Uh, I certainly think that uh, rising oil prices and food prices are a factor linked to COVID problems and the war in Ukraine. But I think there's an element of truth in that issue of money printing turning into inflation. Now, the reason I'm talking about this is there's a couple of interesting news articles you may not have seen today, which refer to the government thinking about helicopter money, not actually using it, but thinking about it last year during the extended lockdowns that crippled Auckland and the Waikato. We've discovered through an article reported by Mark Dalder at Newsroom that the government just quietly asked the IRD in early November last year whether it could make a helicopter payment of $100 each to every New Zealander. Now, this would be money spent by the government, to be clear. But, of course, the government had sold bonds to the markets in the previous 18 months, and then the Reserve Bank had gone on to those markets to buy those bonds. So, in a roundabout way, the Reserve Bank had created money to give to the government to help fund its response to COVID. And the government could have used that money to pay cash to everyone in an equal amount, $100, straight into their bank accounts. Sounds like an easy thing to do. Well, it turned out, according to advice in the official information, obtained under the Official Information Act by Mark Dalder, that the IRD was saying it wouldn't be easy for them to do. Now, the reason this is interesting is that later in November, about a week later, the government said, OK, well, maybe if it's not all New Zealanders up and down the country, but only Aucklanders, could you do it? And the IRD said, no, well, that would actually be even, even harder because we'd have to determine where people live and be sure that a bunch of people from Gore didn't pretend to be Aucklanders and get the money instead. Essentially, the IRD said, please go away and stop asking, this, asking us these questions because we just couldn't do it anyway. Now, politically, that would be an interesting conversation to have uh, about whether New Zealanders, all taxpayers, would feel happy 
that a whole bunch of people would get effectively government grants, money out of the middle of nowhere for not for doing anything, just cash, a hundred bucks in your account to go and spend on whatever it is you thought you wanted to spend it on. You know, be it cigarettes or booze or alcohol, or maybe it would be to repay your uh, um, student loan or to uh, pay off a high interest rate uh, um, car loan. Or maybe it would be to buy masks so as to not spread COVID around. It could have been spent on anything. And so often these helicopter payments are quite politically controversial. I can imagine the Mike Hosking editorial right now. However, uh, what is interesting is how it compares with what the government actually did during COVID. During COVID, quite early in the game, the government decided to make what it called wage subsidy payments direct in cash to businesses. Now, we all know about these. They totaled about $20 billion over 2020 and 2021, and they were called wage subsidies and COVID resurgence payments. Some of them went to people in businesses in Auckland. Uh, But at the beginning, they went to every business who basically was prepared to say out loud that they needed it. And that money went straight from MSD, so the Ministry for Social Development, into the bank accounts of people who applied for it online. And enormous numbers of businesses often quite small businesses, one or two people operations, contractors, all sorts, large ones, small ones, the likes of Fletcher Building, uh, uh, NZME, which owns the New Zealand Herald, uh, uh, Briscoe's, the warehouse, a whole bunch, took those cash wage subsidy payments. And the idea was, of course, that that burst of cash from the government into the hands of and their bank accounts of companies would reassure them that the economy wasn't about to collapse and that they should keep employing people. And the deal was that you didn't sack people after you got the payment. Interestingly, that um, Fletcher Building did that anyway, and so did Sky City. But uh, that aside, uh, that money was pumped out, and in the initial periods of COVID, it was incredibly useful and did stop mass sackings of people and did prevent mass unemployment. And that was a great thing. However, it was fairly clear within a few months that we'd gotten over the hump and that there was actually quite a strong rebound. We were seeing a surge in the housing market. Unemployment hadn't risen as expected. You know, the economy was humming. We were out of lockdown and we were spending money uh, hand over fist. Some of it uh, was money that had uh, come to us as individual contractors and the likes, as those uh, wage subsidies. And then I think it would have been fair and prudent for the government to ask those businesses who didn't need the money, because they were now back in profit and generating their own cash, to pay that money back. There's never actually been a widespread call by the government for businesses to repay those wage subsidies and resurgence payments if they didn't actually need it. Now, some businesses were embarrassed into repaying the money after it was reported how much they'd gotten and then how much they were making in profits and paying out as dividends to shareholders. Briscoe's, the warehouse, a bunch of um, high, highly paid law firms, consulting firms, 
reversed uh, their decisions to keep the money and paid it back to the government. And out of that $20 billion, about a $1 billion in total has been paid back to the government by people who realised they didn't need it. Some companies decided to keep it, even though they didn't need it. And there's no law against that. They were essentially grants. And they wouldn't have breached any of the requirements to show that they were down 30 or 40% in revenues in those weeks referred to when the payments were announced. However, over the next year or two, they've made often record profits, and many have repaid cash to shareholders in special dividend payments or share buybacks. Among them are Fletcher Building, uh, which has uh, taken over $60 million in cash subsidies and has repaid hundreds of millions of dollars since then in dividends to shareholders. Uh, NZME, for example, uh, which owns the New Zealand Herald, is also doing the same, having taken millions of dollars in wage subsidies and is now paying that effectively as cash to shareholders. So in effect, the $20 billion paid by the government to businesses in cash as cash subsidies was a transfer of wealth from taxpayers at large to people who owned assets. Now, overwhelmingly, the people who received this money were those who owned businesses and typically owned their own homes and had plenty of assets as well. Now, you could argue they should have used their own assets to uh, cushion the blow of COVID-19. Certainly, in that case, many were quite prepared to sack a bunch of people and not use, not try to sell their own assets. And in many, in many cases, they wouldn't have been able to easily sell their own assets or if they were going to withdraw all their cash from the banks, <laughs> that might have caused its own problem. So I can see why the wage subsidy made sense. However, that those collective decisions by businesses not to repay that money has effectively engineered a wealth transfer to uh, business owners and asset owners. And we can see that in the statistics that are produced by the Reserve Bank about how much cash is in people's bank accounts, both for households and non-financial businesses. And in today's email newsletter, I include a chart showing the uh, uh, increase in cash holdings over COVID by households and non-financial businesses, which is at least $22 billion. So you can see that uh, that was a pretty clear wealth transfer from taxpayers at large to asset owners. Now you could argue, well, look, those asset owners are taxpayers as well. It was just an internal payment in a way. Well, that's not true uh, if you didn't own a business and you didn't receive the wage subsidies. And that effectively means workers and renters, the poorest in our society. Yet where is the outrage from Mike Hoskins and the like about a wealth transfer from taxpayers at large to the wealthy to make them even richer? And that's on top of, of course, the actions by the Reserve Bank and the government to engineer an increase in the value of assets, in particular the housing market, which effectively increased values of assets by about a trillion dollars in the period from February 2020 to about November 2021. Since then, of course, house prices have fallen collectively 6% and in Wellington and Auckland between 10 and 15%. So that number, that trillion dollars, will be a bit lower now, but not that much lower. And it does beg the question, why did we do it that way? Why didn't we, for example, make a helicopter, helicopter payment of cash 
to everyone. And that's what some countries did uh, during the COVID crisis. They just wrote out checks and gave them to everyone individually, all equal. So uh, there was a, a very fast way to get that money out there. Now, some would argue those payments helped generate inflation now, but certainly they stopped a depression-style collapse. Now, um, if New Zealand was to do these helicopter payments, how would that work uh, from a government point of view? And how should it be funded uh, from a government point of view, and in particular the Reserve Bank? So we know that the Reserve Bank uh, bought $55 billion worth of government bonds uh, by uh, going out into financial markets and buying bonds, often bonds that had been sold to banks and fund managers just days before by the government as it borrowed in financial markets. There's an interesting question there about uh, ticket clipping and who made a little bit of money on the way around that merry-go-round. But uh, it, that was done to avoid the impression that the Reserve Bank was printing money to fund deficit spending, or what they call monetization, which they were nervous would create expectations of inflation. Well, as we uh, can look back on that period now, we could say people would have been right to worry about the expectations of inflation. And certainly the demand that came from all this money printing, not just in New Zealand, but all around the world, is one of the factors that has pushed up inflation. However, um, that helicopter money and that monetizing of the deficit could have been done a different way. That is where, for example, the government paid money directly into people's bank accounts. But as we know, that's actually quite difficult to do because uh, the IRD has told us, uh, and we saw yesterday in a report from Janae Tibshraini, formerly of interest.co.nz, now working for the Herald, she reported um, the acting CEO of IRD telling a select committee yesterday that um, the IRD struggled actually to make the $350 cost of living payments that are coming out shortly that were announced in the budget. Now these are the payments of uh, $27 a week for about three months that are going to people who are earning less than $70,000 and who are not receiving the winter energy payment and that includes of course uh, beneficiaries uh, who have received the winter energy payment already. So that's quite a targeted thing. And the IRD uh, is about 2.1 million people who are eligible for this payment. Well, yesterday the IRD said that they hadn't been able to initially get hold of 170,000 bank accounts and had to employ 300 contractors to connect up the dots of the people with their bank account numbers and ensure them the money could be paid. Uh, they've now gotten about 130,000 of those bank account details and the remaining 40,000 they're still working on. In the long run, they think there's about 11,000 they won't be able to get hold of. But what they're saying is that it's quite logistically difficult for them to actually make cash payments to everyone in a very broad way uh, immediately. And uh, we really can thank our lucky stars that MSD, for example, was very easily and quickly able to make those payments to businesses, but obviously a much smaller number of people, and many of those businesses had their bank account details set up and hooked up with the IRD. 
Now, the IRD, of course, is the most obvious candidate to do this because they have relationships involving cash payments to and from with almost all New Zealanders and, of course, all New New Zealand businesses and charity organisations, particularly those ones who are paying GST or PAYE. And, of course, the IRD has been used in many cases to as the... Um, fastest cab off the rank to make payments or to collect money. So, for example, student loans, that's administered or was by the IRD, and also um, single parent family uh, payments, uh, uh, the dads who've left who have to make uh, payments for family support, those sorts of things administered by the IRD. And often the government goes straight to the IRD when they're trying to do this sort of thing. The IRD obviously tries to push back Otherwise, they'd end up as the department of everything. And um, they've made a lot of progress in recent years in redeveloping their higgledy-piggledy, jammed-together collection of uh, computer systems into one uh, fast-running, humming machine which collects money at a great rate of knots. So, would you make the IRD do it? Well, how about another idea? And this is something I'm proposing, which is the idea of a bank account with the Reserve Bank for every New Zealand resident and that the Reserve Bank could create a new currency, an electronic New Zealand dollar, or you could call it a tata, this is the Māori word for dollar, and you could call it a matariki account because, well, today's the day before matariki and I thought it would be a good a good name for an account. And you could set this up in advance of a crisis. So you didn't have this sort of last minute scramble to try and work out how to make the payments and to get the connections with bank accounts and then have to go through the debates about whether you're giving money to people to spend on cigarettes and alcohol and gambling, all of these sorts of questions. The Reserve Bank actually is considering setting up a new electronic currency. These are uh, currencies that um, would make it very easy to move money between accounts and to uh, make payments without having to resort to the banking system. Because at the moment, of course, uh, a lot of New Zealanders take for granted that we have an FPOS system and payments can also be made through credit cards, either debit or credit cards, often issued by banks. And uh, many people now just wander up to the dairy or the supermarket and wave their card at the machine, or in many cases are able to wave their iPhone or Google phone at the machine, and uh, it all magically happens. The bank clips the ticket on the way through. Money is transferred from one account to the other. It's not so easy when you're trying to move money overseas. And for many other countries, the United States in particular, those sorts of uh, FPOS payments and electronic payments of bank-created money is actually quite difficult and expensive and time-consuming. This is one of the drivers for the various pushes for cryptocurrencies and using blockchain to try to uh, make the uh, uh, payment system more efficient and less costly because, remember, the banks load in a bunch of fees for uh, all of these payments flying around the world. So central banks are looking at creating their own electronic digital currencies because remember, central banks don't actually issue money. Now, I know it seems strange when you look at an actual uh, dollar bill. Well, we don't have dollar bills anymore. Um, a dollar coin uh, or, let's say, a $10 note. It is apparently issued by the Reserve Bank. And that's true that cash money is. 
and it's got a signature there from the Reserve Bank Governor and a lovely see-through image of a, a TUI or whatever it is. I must say I haven't actually looked at an actual banknote for years, but uh, that is issued by the Reserve Bank. But the other money, which we all have in our bank accounts, which you know comes in from uh, our work, or maybe it's a benefit, or maybe we've just sold an asset, that goes into our private bank accounts. So it might be an ASB or ANZ, BNZ, Westpac, Kiwi Bank, SBS Bank, those private banks. And that money, which you think uh, has been created by the government, hasn't actually. Uh, it's been created by private banks. And you say, well, hang on, that's not, that's not true. Um, surely they have to have money in their account and uh, then issue it to us. They're effectively lending us someone else's money that's in a savings account. Well, no, um, the way the banking system works is that the bank can create money out of nowhere by making a loan to a person. And on one side of its accounts, it has the loan as an asset. And on the other side, it creates a bunch of liabilities in the form of new money that is in term deposit accounts. So, for example, when I borrow money from a bank, let's say it's a million dollars to buy a house, the bank creates a million dollars, gives me the million dollars, then I put the million dollars into someone else's term deposit account or uh, trust account so that... um, I can sell, I can buy the house off this other person. And that's how the money ends up in the various bank accounts. Now you could argue, well, that's, that can't be true. Otherwise the banks would issue crazy amounts of money as if it was going out of fashion. Well, in theory they could, and that's one of the dangers of a banking system. That's why they have to be regulated. And the Reserve Bank forces the banks, uh, and the banks have a license, uh, and they work very hard to keep those licenses, forces each bank to ensure that every time they do make a loan, they have a certain percentage of their own equity capital, cash if you like, that backs every loan. So when the bank lends me a million dollars, it has to put aside $150,000 of its own into a nice safe place somewhere else so that um, push comes to shove if uh, uh, my loan goes bad, the, the bank has a bit of a buffer to cope. And also the Reserve Bank forces the banks to have plenty of liquid available cash around so that if um, suddenly I got nervous and me and everyone on my street went to my bank account and said, please can I have my money back, that the bank would have plenty of money to do that. That's what it calls its liquidity policies. And it means that many banks have to ensure they have plenty of money in term deposit accounts or they've got uh, money they've received from... Uh, or they've borrowed from uh, banks overseas at very long terms, so stable and long-term funding. Uh, this is the um, the dirty little secret, in a way, of how our economy and our banking system works. It's money created by the private banks, which means they control how the money is transferred and how we use it to buy things and clip the ticket along the way. An electronic currency is separate from that banking system. And if it was a central bank-created currency, it would be the Reserve Bank who created this new electronic New Zealand dollar and would have its own accounts that individuals trading these currencies would have. Now, uh, and you would have seen how it looks like in the private world, where Bitcoin and Ether and all the other uh, 
new digital currencies, which are controlled by effectively uh, agreements to create blockchains and miners creating a currency um, out of nowhere, so to speak, but doing it by by making calculations in the blockchain. Um, This is uh, how you limit the amount of money in the world uh, if you are um, doing it with a cryptocurrency. Now, with the Reserve Bank creating its own electronic currency, it would have an account for, in theory, those people who are using the currency, and the transfers would be between those accounts. Now, I think that if you were going to efficiently and fairly uh, create a system for helicopter money, in the event that we have another one of these crises, obviously we're not there right now, but we know we could be, and certainly as recently as last November, we were looking at how to do it. Uh, uh, let's say it's an, um, a shocking new pandemic, or maybe it's a global financial crisis, or a horrible volcanic eruption, or whatever it is, and the whole system grinds to a halt, and the government's looking to get money into the hands of people quickly so they can start spending again. Or maybe there's a problem with the banking system, and you want to have an independent way of being able to get money into the hands of people and have transactions and uh, a financial infrastructure that isn't dependent on these private banks. Well, every New Zealander could have an account with the Reserve Bank called a Matariki account. And the Reserve Bank and the government, in the event of a crisis, could put a certain number of e-tara or e-dollars into those accounts, which could then be used by everyone, either through an app or maybe people being issued debit or credit cards to use the existing FPOS system to transact between people. So, for example, if you went to buy a coffee from the cafe uh, um, hut, uh, the hut owner would have their own uh, Matariki account and you would effectively transfer some of your Matariki money, uh, e-tatas, from your account to that account um, via the Reserve Bank's app or uh, a system of doing that. And if you're clever, you could use the debit and credit cards and FPOS cards that are already there. could be a Reserve Bank issued one. Uh, or simply done through Apple Pay or Google Pay, hopefully at a lower cost than is currently the place with the existing money system. And uh, you could uh, set this up in advance of a crisis by, for example, issuing every person born in New Zealand a Matariki account with, let's say, $10,000 in it that their parents or guardians could have control of and use to spend to help them out in those tough few first few years of life. Also, when someone is made a resident, uh, they've been here for uh, two or three years on a temporary work visa or whatever it is, or they've actually formally migrated to New Zealand, and in their, not quite a citizenship ceremony, but um, when they're mailed out, Uh, Their residency approvals, that could include a Matariki card with a certain amount of money on there to start with. And then if there is the crisis, the government, through the Reserve Bank and the Matariki accounts, could inject, let's say it's $1,000 to every New Zealander. That would be fair, it would be fast, and it would be efficient. It would also create a backup piece of infrastructure if the... uh, the bank-based 
payments and banking system were to go down. And the Reserve Bank could apply certain rules to how you spend those itara. Now, the reason I say that is to avoid the problem of New Zealanders who don't really need the money uh, just simply uh, going out there and uh, perhaps having a really big party, lots of beer and alcohol and whatever it was that you're not supposed to be buying, and uh, that would be a problem. Now, interestingly, there are uh, governments who have used this ability to control how things are spent using debit cards. So in Australia, they have a, a system of a bit like a community services card, but loaded up with money, where people are able to buy food and pay for rent and those sorts of things. But the card won't work when you try to buy the booze or the ciggies or the alcohol. Well, as with any electronic currency, it is a form of a smart contract. And if you're clever enough, you can ensure that those e-tartas couldn't be used to pay for the, the bad things, if you like. Or couldn't be used to you know, uh, exchange into other currencies, if that's what you wanted to do. So there are lots of options there. The Reserve Bank is considering whether to create an electronic currency, a central bank digital currency, as are many other central banks around the world. They're a little bit worried that some global tech giant, a Facebook or the likes, could create their own currencies and in effect take away one of the most powerful arms of the government, which is the ability to, to create a sovereign currency and to regulate a banking sector and to control the financial system through those uh, regulated banks. Uh, because, of course, some of these global tech companies are bigger than countries and, uh, and in many cases have more cash than countries and would then be able to, in effect, be uh, in charge of monetary policy and financial policy for an entire country or maybe large chunks of the world. This is a real threat for central banks in the long run. So uh, that is an idea, a matariki account with the Reserve Bank that issues electronic dollars or itaras uh, in the event of a crisis as a cash payment. You could also use it uh, as a, uh, a method for making benefit payments. Um, perhaps it's a place that you have the IID make um, a refunds. Uh, and in effect, if it creates a competitive uh, payment system and, and banking system in a way for uh, the current private banks and also a secondary infrastructure in case the current banking and financial and payment system goes down. Now that's a, a fairly wild idea and I welcome your comments, suggestions, ideas. Please, uh, uh, if you're a paid subscriber, backing uh, the work I do, uh, reporting and analysing and commentating on the political economy from the point of view of housing affordability, climate change and child poverty, uh, please do subscribe and you're welcome to comment, um, make suggestions, deletions <laughs> and corrections. I'm Bernard Hickey. This was a rather long dawn chorus, but... Um, Hopefully some interesting news and an idea there. Kaki te anō.